Hey everyone, welcome to The New Deal. In this episode, I'll be covering the latest headlines, and there's been a lot of them. Also take a look at the flooding in Europe, the spread of the Delta variant in the US, and finally, I'll be focusing on bipartisanship in the US and whether or not it's a myth. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Welcome to The New Deal. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the New Deal podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Nutini. For more from the New Deal, head on over to thenewdeal.com for podcast episodes, blog posts, and YouTube videos. Uh, You can also follow on Facebook, YouTube, uh, read the articles over on medium.com. And please, if you're listening to the podcast or you're over on YouTube, please rate and review, drop some comments, let me know how I'm doing. I would really appreciate it. We're going to get right to it today. We've got a lot to talk about, and we're going to start with some quick headlines. So, Yesterday, I posted a video on YouTube about the January 6th commission. And just for some background on that, the Senate, uh, you know, looked at passing a bipartisan commission to investigate the events of January 6th, and the Senate Republicans voted it down. They wanted nothing to do with it. So Nancy Pelosi began her own commission in the House. And the way it's set up is she can appoint half the members. The minority leader would appoint half the members. But yesterday, when the minority leader you know, gave his list of members, Pelosi actually rejected two of them, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks. And if you watch my video on YouTube from yesterday talking about this, I think Jim Jordan is the class clown of the Republican Party. I have no issue with this. He was there as a distraction. But Pelosi didn't give any actual update yesterday. She released a statement, but she didn't speak. But today she held a press conference. So I just want to play a clip uh, of her press conference here, just giving some insight on why she made that decision. A select committee uh, is um, bipartisan and it has a quorum and it will do the job it sets out to do. And that is to investigate the causes and that of uh, of what happened on January 6th, to find out how it was organized, who paid for it, who messaged to get those people here for the assault on the Capitol. So it's very clear that Nancy Pelosi is trying to make sure that everyone understands that this commission is legitimate. It is looking to find out the truth about what happened, the events leading up to the insurrection, why what happened at the insurrection happened the way it did, and looking at kind of all the different players involved, whether it be the D.C. police or the Capitol Police or the National Guard. And she's just trying to emphasize the importance of the investigation, which I think is important because I think a lot of Republicans especially think that this is just a waste of time because that's been the party message. So Pelosi came out today and she actually spent the first like four minutes of the press conference, or at least talking about this, this topic in talking about the investigation itself and not talking about any of the members of the commission or anything like that, which I thought was a good move because we're not distracting from what's really important, which is the investigation. However, she did also give a rundown of why she made the decision that she did in regard to the members she removed. So here is that clip. So as the legislation allows. I did not accept two of the five people were appointed. Uh, They had made statements and taken actions uh, that I think would impact the integrity of the commission, of the committee, the work of the committee. This is deadly serious. This is about our Constitution. It's about our country. It's an assault on the Capitol that is being mischaracterized for some reason at the expense, at the expense of finding the truth for the American people. So Pelosi there is saying that she's really concerned about the integrity of the investigation. And the reason she gets for removing the members is that she worries that the integrity is going to put in jeopardy. So she removed two members, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks. Jim Jordan could actually be, as I mentioned in my YouTube video yesterday, he could actually be a witness in this case. He may actually, you know, be called to testify based on his uh, interactions with Donald Trump in the you know weeks leading up to the event. So the fact that he was on the commission to begin with is suspect, not to mention the second he was put on the committee, he started 
making fun of the committee, mocking the committee in the way that Jim Jordan always does. Jim Banks, on the other hand, said that this was a practice in left-wing authoritarianism after he'd been put on the committee. So he basically disqualified himself. But what I thought was really great about Pelosi here is that she talks about why she took them off the committee, but then she restates how important this investigation is. Because as I've been saying all along, the U.S. Capitol was attacked. The United States of America was attacked by domestic insurrectionists. And that's something you don't just let go. It's that, that's as if we were to like let 9-11 go. Oh yeah, so you know, planes hit the tower. Oh well, I guess it happens sometimes. You know, you can't write it off that way. You need to investigate this. And if the Senate isn't going to investigate this, then it is incumbent upon the House to conduct an investigation that finds out facts for the American people. And if it finds out that like, you know what, there were failings here, 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 and here, and, you know, Trump wasn't responsible. What, what we need answers. No matter what, we need answers. So that was Pelosi just talking about, you know, the committee uh, rejections, the people she rejected. And I, and I will say, you know, if you don't go listen to the video, the Republicans put forth five members. She rejected two. Three are still on the committee. And she actually suggested that in place of these two gentlemen, that another Republican, Adam Kinzinger, be appointed to the commission. So... We're looking at a bipartisan commission. Speaking of Donald Trump, an interview or several interviews were done with Donald Trump in which he said some kind of crazy things, as Donald Trump knows how to do. But it's become pretty evident that Donald Trump is even crazier sitting down there in Mar-a-Lago than he ever was when he was in office. So here's, here's the first clip, and he's just going to be talking about, you know, January 6th in the election. Um, but listen, listen carefully to what he says. There was a loving crowd, too, by the way. There was a lot of love. I've heard that from everybody. Many, many people have told me that was a loving crowd. And, uh, you know, it was it was too bad. It was too bad that that got, uh, you know, that they did. There were just some... But, some... But my statement... But my Mr. Statement. Pre- Mr. President, I apologize. What we're trying to understand is... Not, not blame, not, not castigate. No, we want to understand what did you want when you said go up there? What would you have dreamed? I would have said that, that you will show not to go in, although they were ushered in by the police. I mean, in all fairness, the Capitol Police were ushering people in. The Capitol Police were very friendly. You know, they were hugging the kids. You don't see that. But in there's plenty places. of tape on that, too, in you know, because they the Capitol Police were that's the way it is. Um, but I wanted I mean, personally, what I wanted is what they wanted. So first, Trump says that it was a loving crowd. And I understand that he's trying to say that the group was a loving crowd before they went to the Capitol and attacked. But we don't have much insight into that either, because it seems like a lot of people came prepared, or rather we can't trust that statement, because a lot of, it seems like a lot of people came prepared to attack the Capitol, traveling great distances with different weapons and like assault gear and, and, and just whatever. So it's, it's not a, at a minimum, it's not a respectful statement. At, at the most, it's extremely insensitive to the people who were hurt and who you know, lost their lives as a result of the insurrection. He goes on to say that people were being ushered into the building by police. And this is an interesting point, because I remember on the day of January 6th, there was some talk that police were letting these people into the building and whether or not there were sympathizers on the Capitol Police, people who sympathized with the crowd, who were letting them in because they felt the same way that they did. That's why we need an investigation. If the Capitol Police, if members of the Capitol Police were ushering people in, then we need to know who they were, why they were doing it, and whether or not it was pre-planned. Okay? So... I mean, I know Trump is using it in a different way here, but he's also lending some credence to the theory that, you know, or to the fact that we need an investigation really, really badly on January 6th. He also made some other statements that I'm not going to play, but I just want to kind of point out here. He said that so many dead people voted, they have lists of obituaries. And it's like, lists of obituaries don't show you whether or not that person you know, should or shouldn't have voted. You need to know when they died, whether they cast a ballot, in which fashion they cast a ballot. And it's just like, I don't know where he comes up with this stuff. Oh, we've got lists of obituaries. Yeah, I can get a list of obituaries too. I can go to the paper and just cut them up and like have them all like copy paste it or whatever. I mean, you probably just go online now and look at them, right? But like, 
I think of newspapers, but illicit obituaries don't accomplish anything at all. He also said that, you know, when it came to stuff like this in the states being able to kind of run their own elections, that the Supreme Court didn't find any facts and that they didn't take up the case. And it's, no, they didn't take up the case because the lower courts found no grounds for there to be a case. That's how law works. So, you know, he's sticking to these weird arguments that he's been pushing since November. And I think some people are still believing him. I'm really hoping that some of the, you know, people who were on the fence about Donald Trump, like liked him, maybe voted for him this time around, are starting to cool off a little bit as he says stuff like this. Because as my dad so fondly calls him, Trump has become the madman of Mar-a-Lago. He's just sitting down there in essentially his bunker, taking on people who, you know, pledge fealty to him and want to do whatever they want for him. And then he pops his head out, says a couple of stupid things every couple of weeks, and boom, you get some clips like these. But I got one more I want to play. Um, I don't think it's been played a lot in the news, but I thought it was an interesting clip. It's from a similar uh, type of interview. So here is the final clip from Trump that I thought was a little bit weird. John McCain was a bad guy. He was a bully and nasty guy, bad guy. A lot of people disliked him, you know, last in his class at Annapolis, all that stuff. Uh, but he was a bad guy. Okay? I say it to you, I don't care. You know, does it affect me? Uh, I won Arizona, okay, by a lot, you know. It didn't turn out that way in terms of the vote, but I won Arizona. Everyone knows it. They know it there. He didn't affect me. I won it the first time. I won it the second time. I didn't get along with John McCain. So we know that Trump doesn't like McCain. He's never liked McCain, but for some reason, he is still talking about McCain, who died years ago now. So it's a little bit weird. That part's a little bit weird. But the reason I played this clip is because he said, I won Arizona. I won Arizona by a lot. But then he says, but the vote didn't turn out that way. But everyone knows I won Arizona. And it's like, what kind of world are you living in where you won Arizona by a lot? So he's quantifying it. Not only did I win Arizona, I won it by a lot. That doesn't make any sense because as you just said, the votes didn't turn out that way, which you maybe shouldn't say because your party is currently conducting an audit of the votes in Arizona. So you probably shouldn't be making any definitive statements about how the votes did or did not turn out because you're going to blow your cover. So you probably shouldn't be talking about how the votes didn't turn out that way, which is the truth. But I mean, that's obviously not your game plan, so play a smarter game. Donald Trump. Also, stop talking about John McCain. It's weird. It's just weird now. Okay? So anyway, that was Trump. The next topic I want to talk about here is, is climate change. And this hasn't been covered as much as I think it needed to be covered. It made the news. It's out there. It's available for people to see. It's a thing. Okay? But last week in Europe, there was devastating flooding, devastating flooding. There, there was a forecast for a massive rainstorm days ahead of time. There was ample warning and full towns wiped off the map uh, that had never seen flooding before in like Switzerland, Germany, Belgium. Multiple countries were affected by this and they had never seen a catastrophe like this before, one of the hardest hit towns, Schuld, in Germany, their previous flooding was in 1790 and 1910. And that town, there are buildings gone, cars floating, there's like a massive sinkhole, buildings swallowed whole. It's flooding like we haven't seen before in countries that are wealthy and have um, systems in place that are supposed to be, you know, flood control systems, flood warning systems, better forecasting. So this needs to be in the news because every year we talk about it a little bit, right? Oh man, like the weather's so crazy. Oh, this is all going on. This is unprecedented in a way that, you know, in other years we have unprecedented events, but this is in the middle of Europe. This was on July 14th and 15th last week uh, when this storm rolled through. Currently, the death toll stands at 205 people, 205 people dead. And remember, they had a warning. They have like four days warning. We'll get to that in a minute. There's still hundreds of people unaccounted for. And they don't know if they'll find them. Because, like I said, there, there are sinkholes. It's, it looks crazy. And in the show notes, uh, you can find the article down there. Look at the pictures. It's, 
it's devastating. It's it's almost unimaginable when when you look at it. One of the articles has a before and after. The landscape is completely different. You can't recognize it. There's billions of dollars in damages. Some towns are likely gone for good. But the problem is that there's a lack of communication here. I mean, outside of like, you know, climate deniers, there was a lack of communication here because there were up to four days warning in Europe for this storm. And I think I read like the equivalent, the storm dropped the equivalent of like 18 gallons of water in essentially one square yard. If you had one square yard and you poured 18 gallons of water on that one square yard, that's the equivalent rainfall that they got in some of the heaviest hit places which is unbelievable, unbelievable. But like I said, they had some warning, about four days warning. But the way it works in Europe is, hey, I'm the weather people, and I say, hey, the storm's coming, and the leaders tell the towns, and then the towns decide what they want to do with it, and some of the towns just didn't do anything with it until they were no longer on the map. Lives lost. Lack of communication, lives lost. Hundreds. I think I saw that this was a maybe once in a millennium event. So you can understand why they would be surprised by it, but they had warning. There's a discrepancy between the level of forecasting that they had and then the death toll and the consequences that occurred when this storm actually hit. And that's something that should not happen. And I think we just all need to be very aware that we are in the midst of a climate crisis. So if something sounds crazy because it's never happened before, that doesn't matter anymore. It can still happen. Act like it can happen. That's where we are in the world. Just some science behind what's going on. Warmer air, as the air warms up, it can hold more moisture. The more moisture the air holds, obviously, the more rain potential that air has. But in the northern hemisphere, what we're also seeing is the jet stream is slowing down. And if the jet stream slows down, Paired with warmer air and more rain potential, we're talking about getting more rain in storms that don't move. So these flood events can become much more common. Uh, here's a news clip uh, from one of the outlets that was covering the story, just to give some insight uh, onto what's going on there. At least 187 people have been killed and 300 are missing after a flooding disaster in Europe. People are still dealing with extremely dangerous conditions there as we're getting a clearer picture now of the devastation. German Chancellor Angela Merkel toured the damage, calling it surreal. And she says this is just one reason for faster action to combat climate change. So at the time I recorded that, there were 187 dead. That is now up to 205. And Angela Merkel said that there are not words in the German language to describe the destruction that exists there. This is in Germany, one of the wealthiest, most industrialized countries in the world. So it's important to realize that no one is exempt from the effects of climate change, and it's here. It's here, and it's happening. You know, we're talking about warmer air and more rainstorms and big things like the jet stream slowing down. But on top of it, the Western United States is on fire. The bootleg fire in Oregon, Oregon, I'm not sure which you say it, but I, I've, I've said Oregon my whole life. The fire started on July 6th, so this fire has been burning for three weeks, and a lot of these fires will burn straight into the winter. They'll just sit there all winter. The fire is only about 25% contained right now. It's burned 364,000 acres of land. For perspective, for my Rhode Island listeners out there, that is one-third of the state of Rhode Island. It's like everything from like Warwick North, just wipe it off the map. Boom. There you go. That's the fire has burned that much area. Okay. A third of Rhode Island gone in this one fire, only 25% contained. Temperatures out West are 10 to 15 degrees above normal. And they're in the midst of a drought. Oh, and by the way, they've got these dry lightning storms rolling through. It's a perfect recipe for mass destruction. And that's what's going on. There are 80 wildfires burning across 13 states. Over 1 million acres in total have been burned, which is an extraordinary amount of land. It's almost an amount of land that you, you, can't, you can't comprehend. What is 1 million acres? I mean, it's essentially the state of Rhode Island. We've got fires burning areas the size of states, which is insane. 
I think also on a personal level, at least here on the East Coast, in, in my personal experience, the weather feels weird. It just, every year it feels a little bit different. And I'm only 30, 33. I think I'm 33. I'm 33. And the winters are different here every year. Like December right now, like if if you're you're like, what what is the weather going to be on December 15th? It, it might be 80. It might be six. No idea at this point. Like it's the the winters are nuts. And it's July and it's been like overcast for like, like most of the month. It's been crazy. We need action on climate change. And some of Joe Biden's economic plan that he's got in the budget addresses climate change to an extent, but there hasn't been enough movement. And one Republican uh, said that he worries that the U.S. is going to be sacrificing jobs for climate change. It's like, what are you talking about, dude? Like, there needs to come a point where jobs and money and even economic well-being to some extent need to take a back seat to ensure our survival. You know, we're talking about eventually like the ocean taking out like most coastal states. Like you need to, you need to like get your priorities straight for lack of a better word. Like, hey, you can have a job or you can die. Like, which one do you want? Like the job or death? You know, you know, it's should be an easy decision. Like money should not be outweighing climate change. Existential threats should come first, I think, right? I, I think that's fair. If you disagree, let me know. But I, I think existential threats come first, and climate change is an existential threat, as these floods in Europe have demonstrated. Rhode Island, where I live, is actually the most affected state by climate change in the continental U.S. We've already eclipsed the two degrees Celsius mark for average temperature. We're above it. In a newspaper article down in the show notes, they talked to a resident whose home used to be a thousand feet from the shoreline and is now only 150 feet for the, from the shoreline. And guess what? They didn't move the house. The ocean is encroaching. Lobster catches in the state are down 75% because lobsters prefer cooler water. So up to Maine they go because it's getting too warm here. You know, so it's, it's just crazy. Overall, the whole world is up 1.2 degrees Celsius, so we've got a little bit of wiggle room, but we need to start making these changes now. I don't think anyone likes seeing the flood, like the flood events in Europe, um, the hurricanes that hit earlier here, the major storms that we're seeing here, and the wildfires out west. You know, thank, thankfully, they're in secluded areas for the most part this year, but if they're not, people are losing homes in their lives. So, you know, it's really important. So I just wanted to touch on climate change there. I wanted to highlight that before I moved on to the next few headlines here. Last week, a judge ruled Dreamers, uh, DACA, unconstitutional because the program was formed by executive action and not through legislation through Congress. Now, DACA went to the Supreme Court last year, and the Supreme Court ruled five to four against its repeal. But the constitutionality of the program itself was not what was on trial. It was the process in which the Trump administration was trying to remove DACA, the way in which they were doing it. So we haven't really seen a constitutional challenge to DACA before. So DACA could be in trouble. Um, what DACA does is if you are an immigrant who came to this country before the age of 16, you are basically exempt from deportation unless you do something wrong and you're put on a path towards citizenship. It's estimated there's about 700,000 Dreamers in the DACA program, 700,000, which is more than the population of Wyoming. You know, we're talking about a lot of people. And this will be appealed, but it's going to go through the most conservative circuit court in America, the Fifth Circuit, where it will likely, this decision that struck it down, will likely be held up. So DACA is in real trouble. Congress can act here. Congress can make DACA permanent. We'll see if they do it. Um, honestly, if DACA gets shot down, I think the Democrats are going to have to do something through legislation because these are people who vote traditionally Democrat. And if this is taken away from them, like we need to have their backs immediately through legislation. Because imagine being one of these kids where it's like, oh, I'm safe. My parents brought me here. It's not my fault I'm here. I'm safe. I've got my friends, I've got my school, I've got my, my community. And in one day, it's like, you know what? You can, they might throw you out of the country tomorrow. Like imagine every day 
living with the fear that your life could be completely upended because somebody in some faraway courtroom decides that the process isn't right. You know, I, I try to frame things in terms of human effect. And I mean, think, think about what it would be like to be like a 14 year old who has had their whole life here. And all of a sudden they might be shipped to a country that they haven't been in since they were one or two years old. You know, America's home to them for what it's worth. So we need the immigration bill. Uh, we need an immigration bill very badly. And hopefully that's on the list. But Republicans aren't passing immigration bills. They had four years to pass immigration. They didn't. Democrats aren't passing immigration. We need to pass immigration. So I just wanted to bring that up there. It's an important subject. We got to keep our eye on it. Hopefully the decision gets struck down and DACA can stay. But either way, Congress should be acting to safeguard these kids. Either way, because this, this back and forth is ridiculous. And I can't imagine the stress associated with that kind of situation. So that's DACA there. I want to touch on COVID real quick before I get into my main focus. The Delta variant is here and it is spreading because people aren't getting vaccinated. I got vaccinated. 50% of other Americans got vaccinated because we were like, you know what? We don't like wearing masks. We don't like going into lockdown. We don't like sitting in our house all the time, doing nothing, nowhere to go, nothing to do. We don't like that. So let's get vaccinated, get back to normal. And 50% of Americans, you know, the ones who had the problem with the masks and the, the lockdown, those people, well, they didn't want to get vaccinated. They like the masks, I guess. They just didn't want to say it. It's been a guilty pleasure this whole time. Okay. But they didn't get vaccinated. And that's problematic because we have this Delta variant which is extremely contagious. The Delta variant has 1,000 times the virus in a human body that the previous versions of this virus had. So regular COVID, it's like, oh, I've only got like 100 of these cells in me, blah, blah, blah. Delta is like, oh, I've got like 100,000 of these things in my body. And even though it may not be much more deadly, if you're carrying more disease, there's more disease to spread which is why we're seeing some stuff in vaccinated people. So vaccines, I want to be clear here, the vaccines are extremely effective. Over 90% of the people who are getting the Delta variant are unvaccinated. But when you have that much you know, illness, um, that many cells in you that you can spread, we're going to have breakthrough cases. So even if you're vaccinated, if you get it, you pose a risk to others to spread it, even if you don't know you had it, even if you are asymptomatic. Same thing as regular. Okay. But the shocking thing that I heard last week was doctors are saying, if you aren't vaccinated, you will get the Delta variant. You will get it. It's almost assured because we do not have herd immunity. And this thing is uber contagious, hyper, hyper contagious. If you're not vaccinated, you're going to get the Delta variant. The Delta variant is a more severe illness that seems to cause more death and more severe illness. If you are not vaccinated right now, especially if I know you and you die because of the Delta variant, I'm going to be pissed at you for not getting the vaccine because nobody has to die. Nobody has to die at this point. Okay. Delta makes up 80% of all cases in the U.S. right now. So basically all the COVID in America, for all intents and purposes, is the Delta variant. And people with the vaccine are getting it and they're spreading it. And then the unvaccinated people are spreading it. And then the hospitalizations are going up. And I don't feel like locking down again. Also, I'm supposed to get married in December. I'd like to have a wedding. We pushed it out way far because we thought we'd be safe. And if the unvaccinated people mess it up, I'm holding a lifelong grudge. It's happening. Okay. But this is all largely due to misinformation by our friends over at Fox News and other, you know, idiots. Because we shouldn't hold back anymore. And you know who hold, didn't hold back was Dr. Fauci talking to Rand Paul. So I want to play this clip because good on Fauci for finally like really sticking up to people for himself and for the spread of misinformation. So here's Dr. Fauci talking to Rand Paul in a committee this week. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to 
was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain of function. So what was, let me take, finish. You take an animal virus and you increase its transmissibility to humans, right. you're saying that's not gain of function? Yeah, that is correct. And, and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. Let's okay, you get NIH. one person. Let's read from the NIH. That may have been a little bit unclear there, what Fauci and Rand Paul were talking about. But honestly, it doesn't matter. Fauci telling Rand Paul that he doesn't know what he's talking about over and over and over again is one of the most entertaining things I've heard all week. Because they've been going at it for most of COVID, but Fauci's always been, you know, generally respectful. If you watch Fauci in that video clip, he is like glaring at Rand Paul. It is a glorious moment for all things science. Thank God that Fauci is actually sticking up for himself. He's unrestrained now, you know, so it was just good to see. So I just wanted to play that just because I thought it was funny and, and honestly necessary because misinformation needs to stop and we need that kind of reaction when we hear it. But anyway, moving on. Some more stats. Only about 50% of Americans are vaccinated, okay? The Surgeon General is beginning to consider putting out further mask mandates, which nobody wants. The seven-day average of new cases has increased by nearly 70% to almost 30,000 cases per day, and hospitalization is up 36%, okay? These are huge numbers. For just a little bit more perspective, here is Dr. Walensky um, from the CDC. Uh, she is going to talk about the pandemic, and I just wanted to play this clip here. So here we go. There is a clear message that is coming through. This is becoming a pandemic of the unvaccinated. We are seeing outbreaks of cases in parts of the country that have low vaccination coverage because unvaccinated people are at risk. And communities that are fully vaccinated are generally faring well. The good news is that if you're fully vaccinated, you are protected against severe COVID, hospitalization and death, and are even protected against the known variants, including the Delta variant circulating in this country. If you are not vaccinated, you remain at risk. And our biggest concern is that we are going to continue to see preventable cases, hospitalizations, and sadly deaths among the unvaccinated. So that was Dr. Walensky, and she's the head of the CDC. And she very eloquently put it, we are seeing a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Over 90% of the cases that we are seeing, well over 90% of the deaths are unvaccinated people. Florida, California, Texas, Louisiana, and Missouri have the most new cases for the virus and the Delta variant. Before I get into the, an interesting stat um, below here, we're losing 300 people a day at this point, which is low. It's not January numbers, but it's low. You know, it, it's not nothing. 300 people a day. And it's safe to say that probably 280 people per day, their lives are being lost needlessly. They should have been alive. They should be here. They should be here right now. If they had gotten vaccinated, they'd be here. That's what the math says. So we're losing 300 people a day and 280 of those people, 280 of those family members, friends, neighbors, they should still be here. Tell the people around you to get vaccinated. Because as I said before, if you're unvaccinated, you're going to get the Delta variant. You're going to get it. Plain and simple. Put this in political terms, because that's what I do. I said Florida, California, Texas, Louisiana, and Missouri have the most new cases as Delta surges. Did some research, drew some numbers together, and what I did was I found all the most vaccinated states by percentage of population, and then I found out which of those states voted for who in the 2020 election and by what margin of victory. Okay? 23. Out of the top 26 states that are most vaccinated, 23 of 26 voted for Joe Biden 2020. That's a staggering number. 23 of the top 26 states in the country, most vaccinated states, voted for Biden in the 2020 election. Nine of the top 11 states are Northeastern or Mid-Atlantic states. The two exceptions are Washington State and New Mexico. Okay? Every state from like from state number 26 down 
there are only three states that went for Biden. All the rest went for Trump. So basically, the top half of the country voted for Biden, and they're the most vaccinated. And the bottom half of the country voted for Trump, and they're the least vaccinated. So politics is playing a huge role here. Misinformation is playing a huge role here. Literally, the people that listen to Donald Trump are the people who are dying right now. You know, the voters who listen to Fox News and those narratives and, and voted for Donald Trump, the stats bear it out. There is a one-to-one correlation. If the state that you live in voted for Biden, then most people in your state are probably vaccinated. And if it's the other way around, most people in your state are probably not vaccinated. And by the way, Florida, Texas, Louisiana, Missouri, they're all down there on that bottom half. California is up on the top half. California is in a weird spot because California has many, 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 many more people in it. So those numbers can be a little bit misleading. However, only 51% of Californians are vaccinated. So California not doing great on their vaccination either. You know, they shouldn't be on this list, but they are. There they are. They're like seven or eight states above Florida. And then Texas, Missouri, and, and Louisiana are, are just, you know, out of luck. They have not done it. It's crazy to me that we have a solution out there to prevent deaths and people aren't taking it. The people around you who aren't vaccinated could die. And when they're on their deathbed and you're wondering why this is happening, you're going to know in the back of your mind that if they had just gotten the vaccine, it could have been okay. And that's not a position that anybody wants to be in. No one wants to be in that position where their loved one is suffering, there's nothing they could do, and then knowing that you could have done something to stop it. Okay? So please get on your family, get on your neighbors, get on your friends to just go get vaccinated. Most people have been vaccinated for months and months and months. There's no issue. It's safe. Your arm hurts a little bit. That part sucks, but you know, it is what it is. Okay? The government is increasing funding to get vaccines in people's arms out there in rural areas. They're spending millions and millions of dollars to try to ensure public safety. And, uh, and we're still like 30% below herd immunity. We need to get to between 70 and 80% for herd immunity. We're not even close. And that's why we're seeing these hotspots. So please, please, please get vaccinated. Tell your friends and family to get vaccinated. No one wants to wear masks. No one wants to lock down. I don't want to do that. So please, let's be proactive. Let's save lives. Go get vaccinated. Now, the last bit of the podcast here, I want to focus on my main subject, which is bipartisanship. One thing I hear frequently is that people are sick of the division in Washington, D.C. Voters, both sides, Democrats and Republicans. But it's also become a common theme that whenever a Democrat is in control, whenever they have two-thirds of the government or more, suddenly everyone calls for bipartisanship. Oh, we should have bipartisan support. And that doesn't happen when Republicans are in control. And I don't know if, that, if Democrats just understand that Republicans don't typically show any interest in making bipartisan deals. But when the Democrats get in office, the Republicans are saying, oh, well, they're not working with us. They're not, they're not being bipartisan. We need bipartisan you know, legislation. It's a little unfair. It's a little backwards. And it paints this picture to all Americans that the government is useless and they don't get anything done. Nothing gets done. They don't work together. And so either you're frustrated because there isn't bipartisanship or you're frustrated because nothing's getting done or both. But either way, you're not thrilled with the government. But I think we need to do some myth busting here just a little bit. First, has bipartisanship been demonstrated? To answer that question, we need to make sure that we are understanding the definition of bipartisanship in the same way. Because I think some people get mixed up. Bipartisanship should be, or rather, bipartisanship is not as simple as both sides agreeing to do something. If something is agreeable, if one side is pitching something that's agreeable and the other side is not doing it, then there's an opportunity for bipartisanship there and it's not being taken. Okay? That's not a lack of bipartisanship. That is obstructionism. So we need to be clear about what we're talking about. If there are agreeable policies on the table, and one of the sides doesn't come to the table, then that side is being obstructionist. It is not the other side refusing to be bipartisan. We need to make this distinction. It's very, very important. Because I feel like a lot of people don't understand 
the complexities of kind of the negotiations, because who has time? Unless you're really into politics, you're not watching the news, you don't know every step of the way, you don't know what's being posed, you don't know what's being, you know, thrown out there, taken back. But I do think it's important that for people who do listen, for people who like myself, who just, you know, for whatever reason, enjoy that kind of thing, are able to put it out there that, hey, the reality is, is that there are major attempts at bipartisanship going on right now. So you might ask, well, why aren't we passing legislation? During the last two years of the Trump presidency, the House of Representatives passed 395 bills that Mitch McConnell never brought to the floor of the Senate for a vote, including bills on infrastructure, reduction of drug prices, voter protection, anti-discrimination laws, and many more. And a lot of those bills passed the House with Republican support in the House, but they never came to the floor in the Senate. That is obstructionism. You have it one person, in this case, Mitch McConnell, saying, you know what, see that you guys passed that, but we want nothing to do with it. Not happening. Obstructionism. One interesting thing that I found when researching this was why there seems to be an imbalance between the Democrats and the Republicans when it comes to bipartisanship and also obstructionism, because I feel like the Republicans are much better obstructionists than the Democrats are. So what I realized is I think the Democrats try to govern a little bit more. I think they put more on the table. They put more policy out there. They try to pass more bills. Why would I say that? What I did was I took a look at the Democrat and Republican platforms. And these are documents that are updated every four years at their respective committees, or they're supposed to be updated every four years. In the notes, if you go look at the links below, you can find the Democratic National Committee, their platform for 2020. And you can also find the Republican platform from 2016 because the Republicans did not update their platform in 2020 because they just decided, I'm not, this is not sarcasm. They just decided that whatever Donald Trump wanted to do would work. So they did not update their platform for 2020. They're working off a platform that is now five years old. But when I looked at these platforms, it became very evident that we are dealing with two very different parties. The Republican platform document is 67 pages long. 13 of those pages are the covers, table of contents, a preamble, and a dedication, bring the effective document down to 54 pages. The Democratic document is 91 pages, with only 7 pages of equivalent filler pages bringing the effective document total to 84, which is 30 more pages, 30 more pages than the Republican platform. Now, that might seem maybe childish or juvenile to look at, but when we're talking about putting forth literally everything your party stands for, the policies you want to pass, and how you're going to do it, and one party's document is 30 pages shorter than the others, I think that means that one party is 30% less ambitious or less interested in governing than the other. The Democratic document is organized. It is highly detailed. It's broken out into tons of different sections. Their table of contents is three pages because they break everything down. It's very well organized. The GOP, they only have five sections in their table of con contents, and it's like all just like really large, vague ideas with very little specifics, and that's a problem, but it's representative of mindset. If you're the Republican Party, you know, the question has to be asked here, what policies are the Republicans trying to pass in order to better govern? Democrats routinely name their goals. Then they create policies. They try to pass them. They put them forth. And, you know, they pass 395 bills, even though they know that they won't pass the Senate. Okay, they try. But what policies are the Republicans trying to pass in order to govern? Remember, because Republicans forget this, Republicans had full control of the government, the House, the Senate, and the presidency for two full years in Trump's first term. Trump's only term, hopefully. And what did they do? They tried to repeal Obamacare. It didn't work. They did nothing. They did nothing. Uh, something about tariffs, okay? Then they, ta they passed a tax plan, and that tax plan actively advantaged the wealthiest Americans, but they structured it in such a way, because this is what Republicans do, where the middle class would see benefit in the first year or two with 
diminishing returns as that policy got older. So we've got the rich getting richer and the middle class getting, you know, the raw end of the stick when it comes to the later years of the tax plan. But hey, that's what they did. Two full years of control, they passed a tax plan. Joe Biden's been in office for a few months. He passed the COVID Relief Act. He's got the American Jobs Plan out there. He's got the American Families Plan out there. He rejoined a, you know, the Paris Climate Agreement and, and the World Health Organization. And in just a few months, you could argue that Joe Biden has done more legislatively than Donald Trump did. In two years, we had full control of the government and Biden is working with a 50-50 Senate. Okay? And I think one question that we need to answer as voters is, is it better for a party to pass no legislation at all than to pass some legislation and risk it backfiring on them. Do the Republicans not pass legislation because they're afraid that either if it's a Democratic, you know, type of law that it will work and they don't want it to work because if it works, people want to keep it like Obamacare or pass no legislation and just say, oh, you know, government's not getting anything done and we're just here. We're stopping the Democrats. If your whole platform is stop the Democrats and you succeed at stopping the Democrats and then you don't pass any laws, you're really not fooling anyone because you're telling people, hey, our job is to stop the Democrats and that's what we're doing. That is our platform, right? We're talking about bipartisanship. So I want to throw some examples. You know, keeping in mind the way that those two party platforms are structured, those documents are structured and the details. Stay with me here as I run through. Keep those in mind while I go through these specific examples of where bipartisanship has come into play since Biden has been in office. The first example is with the January 6th commission, okay? So the January 6th commission was put forth by the House, went to the Senate. They wanted a 50-50 commission, half Democrat, half Republican. They all have subpoena power uh, and a sunset date of December 31st of this year. All these conditions, right? And those conditions were negotiated by Republicans. Republicans said, hey, we want ABC. And Democrats said, you know what? A, B, and C, that sounds fair. We'll give that to you. Um, and guess what? The Republicans wouldn't even debate it. They voted it down. Democrats agreed to all the conditions from Republicans to get this commission, and the Republicans voted it down. John Thune, the Republican uh, whip, voiced concern about a commission distracting from the party's message heading into the 2022 midterm election. We're talking about something that came up in the first three months of a presidency. And he's worried about what they'll look like in 2022. And oh, by the way, we're talking about a commission that's examining an attack on our country. But hey, might look bad for the midterm. So don't want any truth on that. That shouldn't matter. That shouldn't matter. That's idiotic. Are you serving the country or yourself? Because it's pretty clear you're serving yourself. Um, another Republican said, a lot of our members want to be moving forward. Anything that gets us to rehashing the 2020 election is, I think, a day lost. This shouldn't matter. We're talking about an attack on the U.S. Capitol. It shouldn't matter if Trump's name comes up or the election comes up. We need to find out the truth, right? Because America was attacked and we're Americans. And when we get attacked, we figure out what happened and we do something about it, right? I thought. Guess not. Lisa Murkowski said Republicans needed to avoid making a decision for short-term political gain at the expense of understanding and acknowledging what was in front of us on January 6th. And that should be the stance of Republicans, okay? Because there are some Republicans out there who understand bipartisanship and understand that they have a, they have a responsibility to the country outside of themselves and their party. And there's Lisa Murkowski saying it, okay? So, number one. January 6th commission, Democrats speak with Republicans, Republicans make certain demands, Democrats concede all the demands, Republicans still don't vote for it. So you tell me, is that a lack of bipartisanship or is that obstructionism? Because I'm going to tell you 100 times out of 100 that that is obstructionism. And I just want to put the facts out there so everyone knows what happened. I'm not biasing this. This is how the process played out. Let's look at voting rights. The voting rights plan came to the floor, the For the People Act. It's a widespread, huge Democratic plan for voting rights reform. 
It's huge. Okay. And then there's a second bill called the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which would restore Section 5 of the original Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is just federal oversight for discriminatory election policies at the state level for federal elections only, by the way. So those two bills are out there. Well, the Democrats want to pass the For the People Act, which has a whole bunch of different provisions in it. And Republicans say, we're not voting for that. They said, maybe we'll back the other one, but we're not voting for that. So Joe Manchin, who's been a needle in the side of most Democrats since Joe Biden has taken office, said, you know what? I want to vote on a bill, but it's going to be a bipartisan bill. And the Republicans didn't put anything forth. So Joe Manchin, in an act of goodwill, puts forth a revised plan, the Manchin Compromise, making many concessions to Republicans on the voting rights bill. He put forth a trimmed back bill that included provisions to mandate a voter ID nationwide and remove many other points from the original bill. So just to go through it here, he said we did not need to mandate mail ballots, which was on the original bill. So Manchin said, you know what, we're not going to mandate mail ballots. Nope, we don't need to do same-day voter registration. That's not required. Ballot collection rules. Nope, we're not going to make any of those. We're not going to improve that process. And he also removed many provisions for new safeguards and security around the auditing and the chain of custody policies that the GOP opposed. I don't know why they'd oppose that. I don't know why you'd oppose election security. But Manchin took that out of his bill as well. This bill received report from Democrats, a lot of moderate Republicans, and even progressives like Stacey Abrams and, and former President Obama endorsed it. But Mitch McConnell came to the floor and he said, this bill still subverts the First Amendment to supercharge cancel culture and the left's name and shame campaign model. It takes redistricting away from state legislatures and hands it over to computers and it still retains Section 1's rotten core and assault on the fundamental idea that states, not the federal government, should decide how to run their own elections. Which, by the way, that last line, bogus, because federal election law only applies to federal elections. Okay? Period. And done. That's it. So you got McConnell, the Senate leader, standing up on the floor, telling his members not to vote for a compromise bill in which Democrats gave away like half of what they wanted in the name of compromise. Is that a lack of bipartisanship? Or is that obstructionism? They wouldn't even bring the bill to the floor to debate. So maybe they didn't like everything in Joe Manchin's compromise, but they could have brought it to the floor and debated it and negotiated and passed a different version. Wouldn't even debate the bill. Is it a lack of bipartisanship or is it obstructionism? And finally, I want to go over the last two things here, or three. There's currently a $1.9 trillion relief package, or rather, Joe Biden passed a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. The measure included aids to states and local governments, it increased unemployment insurance, a support for vaccination efforts, education aid, refundable child tax credits, which you may have gotten in the mail just this week. He pushed manufacturers to increase vaccine production, provided federal support for mass vaccination sites, and ensured that a vaccine is accessible within five miles of almost every American. And part of that $1.9 trillion relief package was a provision that no one must spend more than 8.5% of their total salary on insurance premiums, which you probably didn't know. Which experts say is among one of the most significant changes to the affordability of private healthcare insurance in history. Did that bill pass with bipartisan support? No. No, it didn't. It got barely any Republican support. All those things I just mentioned, Democrats, up and down. Is that a lack of bipartisanship or is that obstructionism or is that just a lack of willingness to give credit to the other side? You tell me. There's currently a $2.3 trillion infrastructure proposal that includes about $650 billion aimed at curtailing climate change. Over $200 billion of that would build and retrofit affordable housing for energy efficiency. $175 billion is to shift the nation to electric vehicles. Another $100 billion to upgrade the country's electric grid. Looking at you, Texas. But the bill, that bill hit a snag this week because Republicans are pushing back on a funding source because part of the funding is that the IRS enforce their collection better. But Republicans don't want that. They said, no, they don't want, they don't want the IRS to harass people, they said. Uh, meanwhile, they're coming back and saying that we should adopt these things called user fees, which are essentially taxes passed on to me and you because we decide to buy certain products. That's what Republicans want. 
So this build, this infrastructure plan, which we've needed for a decade, might be held up because um, instead of having the IRS collect money from people who don't pay their taxes, instead, we should just pay more money for the things that we buy every day. Is that obstructionism or is that bipartisanship? Maybe it's negotiation. We can put that one out there for this one. Maybe there's, there's some hope on the infrastructure bill. Okay. And then finally, we've got the Budget Reconciliation Plan, also known as the American Families Plan. It's a package that includes provisions aimed at addressing climate change, expanded access to education, affordable childcare, broader Medicare benefits, and two pieces of legislation together um, comprise most of what the White House's agenda. So what I just talked about above the infrastructure plan and this American Families Plan, all of that is basically Biden's full agenda, right? In this bill, child poverty will be cut in half this year because of that child tax credit, the Urban Institute estimates that child poverty will be cut from 13.7% to 6.5% because of that child tax credit. One Trump voter in a focus group said they didn't know about this. They didn't know it existed. And when they were told about it, they said, oh, if that passes, that will change my life. Okay, these are big. this is a big deal. It's money in your pocket every month. This plan would expand that benefit till the year 2025. It will also have provisions for Medicare to include dental, vision, and hearing, reduces the Medicare eligibility at age 60. It will not raise taxes on households that make under $400,000 a year, includes funding for massive improvement in green energy and stricter goals for climate. Remember, we talked about flooding before. That's a big deal. Calls for a tax on imports from countries that pollute. And I've heard this argument from some Republicans. Why are we going to invest in climate change when other countries are polluting? Good point. We're now going to tax those countries We're going to tax those products when they come here because we don't want to be buying products from companies that pollute. That's in there. And further, you know, where's the GOP health plan? Where's the GOP infrastructure plan? Where's the GOP immigration plan, jobs plan? They couldn't even organize a federal work effort around COVID. Okay. So with that last one, is that bipartisanship or is that obstructionism? Look at everything that's there. That last part, that bill, that $3.5 $3.5 trillion bill? Democrats started that bill at $6 trillion. They cut nearly half of their spending out of this bill at the Republicans' demand. And there is a group of senators, I believe there's about 10 of them, that are working in a bipartisan fashion on this, okay? But if this doesn't pass, look what's here. Look what we're all going to lose out on because of obstructionism, because I'm going to tell you 100 times out of 100 that it's obstructionism. If, if Republicans spent half the time writing policy, as they did calling Democrats communists and socialists, they might have a leg to stand on, but they don't. They don't try to pass anything. As a general note, by the way, American families pay about $6,000 per year for corporate subsidies. Walmart alone receives nearly $8 billion a year. $8 billion. And with billions more going to other large companies, in the form of grants and tax breaks and write-offs, okay? So while the GOP is like, hey, we don't want the uh, IRS to, you know, collect any more taxes on, you know, people. Uh, meanwhile, you and I are paying an average of $6,000 a year to subsidize corporations. So the Republicans will complain about welfare, but, you know, when it comes to companies, you know, Walmart can have $8 billion, no problem. All right? We need to consider all these things when we're talking about policy and making policy. And when we're talking about bipartisanship, there's a difference between bipartisanship and obstructionism. And if one side is trying and the other side just isn't trying, that's obstructionism. Don't say that bipartisanship doesn't exist in Washington when there's an honest attempt at bipartisanship. Okay? Because that's how these myths get perpetuated and that's how people lose faith in government. Don't lose faith in government. Lose faith in the obstructionists. That's where we need to be. So, just to wrap up the episode, I plan on doing more on bipartisanship in the future because a lot of these issues, the truth gets distorted and then your, your perception gets, gets messed up. You know, the voter base in general, you lose faith in government when the government's trying, or at least part of the government's trying. So I think we need to focus on this. I think we need to tell the story of what's actually going on on a day-to-day basis. As a way to do that, I'm going to try to break down new proposed legislation. So there, there were some focus groups. Um, I heard this on Pod Save America. And the focus groups found overwhelmingly that 
the people in the focus groups, whether they are liberal or conservative or voted for Trump or Biden, overwhelmingly support the economic plan and the infrastructure plan and the American families plan. Overwhelming support. But they didn't know about it. It's not being communicated. No one is telling them that like, hey, all this good stuff is in these bills. Instead, they're just like, oh, Biden, we don't want to pass any of that stuff. No way, it's Biden. But you tell them what's in it and they're like, that's great. Okay, so we need to do a better job of communicating what legislation is being passed and what's in it. What's in the voting bill? What's in the economic recovery plan? What's in these bills? We need to figure it out. So I'm going to spend some more time on that in the future. So please check back in for those episodes. It's important. Education's important. Not everyone can watch politics all day. Not everyone can watch the news all day. But if I'm in it, I want to communicate what I'm seeing in a hopefully, you know, simplified way that conveys the message in a straightforward format. Second, it is so important that we get vaccinated and keep fighting COVID. The chain is easy to understand. The virus spreads. The more it spreads, the more it mutates. The more people are vaccinated, the less opportunity the virus can spread, the less it mutates. The less people are vaccinated, the more the virus spreads, the more it mutates. And then we get these breakthrough cases. We get people who are vaccinated getting it. We get the Delta variant that's like, hey, I'm going to spread to everybody because I'm the Delta variant. It's important. Ask your friends and family to get vaccinated, guys. I do not want to go into lockdown or wear a mask anymore. No one does. Please, if we all get vaccinated, we can get back to normal. Let's do it together. Please, please, I'm begging you. On top of that, everything I've talked about today on this podcast rests on how we see each other and how we value human life, whether it's climate change or the pandemic or making our society an easier place to live or to succeed. All of those decisions are ultimately determined by how we value human life and how we value the lives of others, primarily strangers. We need to re-examine or maybe redefine or create in the first place our goals. It doesn't have to be a choice between the greater good and the greater me. If we do everything right, we can create a world with the greater good in mind, and that will yield many more great individuals. And the more great individuals that we have in this country, the better off we are all going to be. But with the pandemic, we want to keep people alive. We want our neighbors alive. It doesn't matter if you voted for Trump or for Biden, or if you didn't vote at all, we want you alive because your life matters. You have a family, you have friends, you have people that care about you. They want you alive. I value your life. Go get vaccinated. With climate change, I don't want people's houses destroyed. I don't want to see the pictures on TV of the flooding in Germany and the lives destroyed there, the property destroyed there. No one wants that. Let's fix climate change because we care about other people. Let's do it because we care about other people, guys. If we put people first, and, and this is something that I want to try to convey on this podcast, moving forward, you know, compassionate politics, we need to frame all of our political arguments, all of our problems and solutions in terms of the human experience first. Because if we start with how does this affect people? What problem needs to be solved? Are people suffering? If we start there, instead of starting with, well, how much is it going to cost? We can make real change in people's lives. But as long as we're thinking about like, oh, well, it costs too much. We don't want to give them that. Or if I give them this much money, it's going to come out of my pocket. We're never going to get anywhere because guess what? Greedy people never want to give up anything. So as long as there are greedy people in the government or in the voting booth or wherever, we're not going to get anywhere because they're going to put themselves first every time. Hard turn real quick. A lot, a lot of friends on my Facebook page, my personal page, um, are conservatives. And I engage them all the time. And I've had multiple people message me over the years and say, why don't you unfriend them? Why do you talk to them? I talk to them because I know these people. And even though what they're saying seems absurd or even offensive at times, I know these are good people. There's something about the way people talk about politics. And, and it's like, I know that that person cares about the people around them. They care about their friends. They care about their family in the same way that is necessary, that if we all did it, we would pass better legislation. But there's a barrier between what they do in their personal lives and how they perceive politics. And if we can bridge that gap, if we can bridge that gap for people like that who say these kind of things, and we can open up the world to them and be like, listen, this suffering is going on. And if you can think for two seconds about how that affects other people, like you do about your family, like you do about your friends, because I know you have the capacity to do so, we can get places. That's why I don't unfriend them. I know that they're good people. I don't understand what the barrier or the wall is between like the way that they act in their personal life versus the way that they approach politics. That's something that the psychologist will have to figure out. But in the meantime, the capacity is there. 
So we all need to recognize that capacity. And then I challenge those people who put things like climate change and the pandemic and, and you know, don't get vaccinated. I challenge those people to please think about other people because you can, you do think about other people in the way it affects them and maybe see if you can readjust your thinking if you're willing. All right. So talked about a lot today. As usual, I'm over the hour. I always go over the hour. Um, thanks for listening. We covered a lot. We covered the headlines. We covered the DACA case, COVID-19, bipartisanship, and this outro. So there we are, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the New Deal podcast. Uh, once again, go to the Facebook page. You get the New Deal Facebook community group. Go post news. Have a conversation. I will engage you because I engage people. So let's do it there. Head on over to the YouTube channel. I post videos there pretty regularly. Check out the video from yesterday um, or go to thenewdeal.com where everything is posted. So thanks again for listening. I will talk to you guys shortly. New Deal out.